0: The Gospel reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 10, uh, verses 22 to 30. John 10, 22 to 30. Let us hear the Gospel. Glory be to you, O Lord. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness to me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise Praise be to you, O Christ. Grant us, O Lord God, the knowledge of your divine words, and fill us with the understanding of your holy gospel and the riches of your divine gifts, and the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, enable us with joy to keep your holy commandments, and accomplish them, and fulfill your will, and to be accounted worthy of the blessings and the mercies that are from you now and at all times. Amen. You may be seated. Did your father ever kick you out of the family? I doubt that that happened to anyone here today, this morning. Even when pushed to the limits of exasperation, most fathers put up with their children's antics. Even if a father should give an unruly child a a time out, it's rare that a father would permanently disinherit a child. It's so rare that when this happens among public figures, it makes the news. Uh, you, see, you see this uh, in the headlines. So if your father did not kick you out of the family, why not? Is that because you were a model child? You were just perfect and wonderful all the time? <clears throat> um, you know, uh, I, I think that most of us would have a hard time uh, measuring up to there, but maybe, maybe Ruth would. Maybe Ruth was a model child. Um, <clears throat> Was it because you were so profitable? Well, Mozart's father made a lot of money by following Mozart around all over Europe and, uh, and having him play performances. Uh, <clears throat> well, I made some money when I was a child, but I kept it for myself. Uh, <clears throat> well, did you terrify your father? Perhaps your father wanted to expel you, but he was afraid, thought w- afraid of what you might do to him. Uh, <clears throat> or... Maybe, uh, maybe your father didn't expel you because you were so charming. Uh, you know, maybe you concealed all of your badness with your uh, just irresistible charm. <clears throat> well, these scenarios seem wildly implausible because we sense that most fathers actually love their children. Now, we just returned, Ruth and I just returned from visiting Peter and Megan. And Megan was telling me how bad one of their children is. She colors on the walls. She throws water all over the house and gets in all kinds of other mischief, which Megan didn't have time to to, uh, detail for me. Um, All day long, this child is very naughty. She doesn't increase the family assets at all. Uh, Now, she's she's not violent, um, so she has that going for her. Uh, (laughs) She's cute, but not cute enough to make us oblivious to her badness. But Peter and Megan would never expel this child from the family, and it has nothing to do with her performance or her economic value. Peter and Megan love this child and all of their children. And there's nothing that she can do that's so bad that they would want to exchange her. Now, Peter and Megan are mature Christians and impressive parents, but even non-Christians and even bad parents love their children, Love for our children seems to be baked into human nature. Even lazy, irresponsible parents of unlovable, destructive children nevertheless love those children. Well, can you imagine a performance-based family? A family in which you have to measure up to some standard of good behavior in order to stay in. A family in which you have to demonstrate some good return on investment in order to to avoid being fired. a family in which either you have to terrorize or charm your parents in order to avoid getting kicked out what would it be like to be a member of such a family well maybe someone here was a member of a family like that uh, but you know, but i think it would be horrible uh, it would drive you insane to live in constant fear daily fear moment hour by hour being afraid that you would do something that you would get you kicked out and expelled. Uh, You know, I think you would run away. Uh, I would either run away or maybe even resort to violence to break the crushing burden of performance. Now, some of you, however, would attempt to perform all those expectations, but you would fail, but not not before becoming thoroughly exhausted and angry in the process. We can be certain of one thing. There would be no joy in such a family. Such a family would be hell. Now, what does it mean to be a Christian? Most people, Christians and non-Christians together, believe that being a Christian means being a good person. Most people believe this deeply and cling to this belief tenaciously. So you hear people complaining in shock at the behavior the misbehavior of Christians. You hear people say they don't go to church because of the bad behavior of those who do. Anytime something newsworthy happens in the church, reporters highlight this sinful behavior as though this is proof that the gospel is false. Well, let's clearly and emphatically say that Christians are called to a high moral standard, and God is not pleased with sin anywhere, especially not among his people. (coughs) God has given us a high moral standard in the Bible. God calls his followers to pursue such a life. God also declares himself the father of those followers. And that makes the church a family. So do you know what is truly scandalous? What's more scandalous than the scandals in the church? Outrageous sin is scandalous, but it pales beside the scandal of thinking that the church should be a performance-based family. And people do it all the time. We do it. Perhaps we don't go so far as to wish God would expel some Christians, but we can become angry with them. And we can become angry with God that such miserable sinners are allowed to go on calling themselves Christians. Now, there are some extremes. I know two families with children who really are violent and are a grave danger to their siblings. So extraordinary, strong measures have to be taken to protect the rest of the family from murderers, including murderers who are in its midst. And likewise, in the church, from time to time, uh, the spiritual murderers arise, and God must take exceptional measures to protect the family from these evil people. But that's not who we meet on a daily basis, That's not who we are. We're people who sin by anger or or lust or greed or gluttony or laziness. We know these sins break God's law. We know that God does not approve of sin. And so we live in fear of God. We live as though the church is a performance-based family. You see all the dysfunctions of a performance-based family in the church. Most obvious are the Christians who struggle mightily to meet the performance standard. They don't drink or or watch anything suspicious. They don't smoke anything at all. They eat approved foods. They read their Bible every day. Never miss a Sunday service. Such people are considered very holy. They bask in their superior spiritual position. They piously tolerate those sinners who are in the church. Other performance-based Christians are obsessed with ministry activity and productivity. They measure their ministry skills. They keep pushing themselves to do better. They measure the work of others, and they fail to hide their disdain for people who don't measure up. These people are deeply admired and highly valued and well-paid until they collapse under the weight of impossible demands. And then there are Christians who have no taste for hard work. They've always succeeded in charming their way through life, and they think that God will be charmed by their cuteness. Of course, they do succeed in charming the people around them, and they assume that God is also appeased, and, uh, and so therefore excuses their sin. Folks, is this healthy? Is, is this a healthy way to live? Is this a health, does this describe a healthy church? Is this how the church should be? <clears throat> but it gets worse. A performance-based family is headed by a performance-based father. And a performance-based church is headed by a performance-based God. And this is the horrible consequence of thinking that the essence of the church is good behavior. If you think that you have to measure up to some standard in order to appease God, you've made God into a performance-based father. You've denied that God loves his children. You represent that our relationship with God is transactional, that God blesses us for our good deeds and that we do good things in order to obtain that blessing. You know, this is pagan. Every other religion in the world operates this way. You made God into the equivalent of Zeus or Ra or Odin or or Allah. It's bad enough to wickedly misrepresent the church, but to suggest that God is a performance-based father is blasphemous. Well, in our passage, the Jews were confused. Again, the Jews are always confused. And so was everyone else. In chapter 6, John records that a gigantic crowd had come to hear Jesus, but by the end of the day, they'd all left because they were confused and they got tired and impatient, didn't want to hear just a confusing message. Even his 12 disciples were confused. So we can't much fault the Jews for being confused, except that it didn't have to be that way. The disciples gradually came along and they grew in their understanding, but the Jews remained confused all the way to the end, all the way to the cross. They were confused and put Jesus to death because they were confused about who he was. Jesus explained that his works declared plainly who he was. Jesus had publicly, definitively, completely answered their question. The problem was not that the answer was difficult. The problem was that it was that they didn't want to accept it. Jesus was obviously the Christ. Jesus was obviously the Messiah prophesied centuries before. He was the anointed of God, empowered to deliver his people. This was stunningly obvious. But only those who belong to God are capable of seeing it. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. These Jews were blinded. No wonder they couldn't tell what Jesus was, who he, he was or what he was doing. They were blinded by Satan. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that everyone is born into the world of the flesh and is incapable of, of seeing heavenly things. And only when God gives them faith do people have the equipment to see heavenly things. Jesus is the man who came down from heaven and no one will ever understand him until God gives gives him the faith to understand it. When someone trusts Jesus or when someone uses that faith that God gives him, he is able to see Jesus clearly and then the the confusion begins to fade. Now in this passage, Jesus has been talking about the people of God as a flock of sheep. And this is a well-known image for God's people. It formed the basis of our Psalter reading this morning. It's a powerful image because of the impressive resemblances between sheep and people. Sheep are helpless and dumb. They have few effective survival instincts. They need help in finding food and water and help in giving birth, and they need protection from predators. If left on their own, sheep wander off and get lost. And likewise, people are helpless and dumb, we need help getting through life. Uh, we need protection from predators. Uh, we tend to wander off. And w- w- wait, you say, pe- people, are, people are pretty smart and capable, or at least some people are. And that's true. Some people are amazingly gifted, and they impress us with their gifts, with their skills and talents. But that's only in comparison to other people. In comparison to God, they're nothing, but when scripture speaks of the human condition, it normally has in mind the spiritual dimension, not, not the, the things that we see and experience. It has in mind the, the spiritual dimension of the human, human condition. And here you see in full measure the ignorance and helplessness of human beings. Not only are we unable to save ourselves from the evil of others, we're unable fully to purge wickedness out of our own lives. And we're always wandering off and getting spiritually lost. Scripture says that no one seeks God, and that's because we're always wandering off and looking for something else. So, Jesus in this passage tells us three wonderful things about his sheep in verse 27. First, his sheep, the sheep of Jesus, hear his voice. In all the confusion of this busy, idolatrous world, in the, in, uh, in the confusion of anxious minds, Jesus' voice gets through. Jesus is the lion of God whose roar drowns out all other noise. But to those who are not Jesus' sheep, it's just noise. It's just a roar. Jesus' sheep hear him through the noise and confusion of the world and of our thoughts. Jesus' sheep are comforted, instructed, encouraged. They're thrilled by Jesus' voice. His voice is a delight to his sheep, and they seek it out. Jesus' sheep push aside the cares of the world and turn their ears to the sweet voice of their shepherd. The world doesn't do this. The world hears a deafening roar and are confused. The world seeks a voice that makes sense to them, one that is clear and plainly stated, a voice that sounds like themselves, a voice of flesh. The world has no use for a heavenly voice, but the heavenly voice gives strength and courage and hope and love to those who love to hear it. Second, Jesus knows his sheep. Jesus is no absentee boss nor a hired servant. Jesus is the good older brother who loves his younger brothers. Jesus leaves the comfort of home and goes into the far country searching for his brothers. He searches all night in the dark and dangerous places until he finds the lost sheep. When Jesus finds the sheep, he carries them back home, throws a great feast to celebrate. Jesus is not angry with the the sheep who stray because he knows them. Jesus knows the temptation of hunger, the temptation of power, the temptation of wealth. Jesus experienced all the urgent temptations of the flesh. Jesus lived with the torments of temptation. Jesus never fell to these temptations, but that's not because his temptations were weaker than ours. It's because he was divine. He experienced the full range and the full strength of human temptations without sin. And And because Jesus knows us, Jesus does not throw random scriptures at us. He doesn't give us cheap advice, hoping that something works. Jesus knows who we are. He knows how we fall. He knows how to lift us up and he knows how to strengthen us. Third, Jesus' sheep follow him. Now, we read this and immediately take this as a command, which reveals the wickedness of our hearts. This isn't a command. This is a statement of fact. Jesus' sheep follow him. Now, when you look around and see all the sin in the world and all the sin in the church, what are we to conclude? Does this mean that there are very, very few sheep in Jesus' sheepfold? When you look at the sins still in your life, must you conclude that you are not Jesus' sheep? That you've been deceiving yourself and others all this time? No. No. Our epistle reading in Revelation shows very clearly that Jesus' sheepfold is packed. Packed overflowing with sheep. Our problem is a catastrophic misunderstanding of what it means to follow Jesus. <clears throat> in John chapter 6, back in John chapter 6, where that big crowd was, had gathered, And they asked Jesus what they must do to do the works of God. And you wonder what they were thinking. But here's what Jesus said. He said the work of God is to believe on him whom God has sent. Jesus didn't say, study the Torah, say the prayers, sing the Psalms, give alms to the poor. Although these are important works. He didn't say not do those things. And and we we shouldn't neglect them but the core work of God, the work from which all other works proceed, the only work that matters in the end is to trust Jesus. God came in the flesh and he spoke to us. Did he tell the truth or is it a lie or did he waste his time? If we don't trust God, then no other works matter. But if we do trust Jesus, The other good works will fall into place. Late in the afternoon, cows head to the river for a drink. And if you've ever watched this, they they all walk in a straight line. They all walk in a path that's well-worn, a well-worn path through the pasture. Sheep don't walk anywhere in a straight line. They mill about like a chaotic flock. They get hopelessly lost. They're always wandering off constantly unless the shepherd guides them. But... They listen to the shepherd, and they trust him. It takes longer, and it's less tidy than when cows walk to the river, but all the sheep get there if they trust the shepherd. This is a picture of Christians. Christians are always wandering off. I mean, you can look at a Christian, and you can say, why is he doing that, or where is she now, or what's going on with this person? Yeah, Christians are always wandering off. Just like sheep, they're always wandering off, But, uh, but, but they come back. Eventually they hear the voice of the shepherd and they come back. And eventually they get where Jesus is leading them. So in the course of life's trials and through many wanderings, you may always end up coming back to Jesus. And if that's the case, then you are following Jesus. And then in verse 28, Jesus tells us the most wonderful thing of all. Jesus promises eternal life to his sheep. Eternal life has been trivialized in the modern world to mean life forever after death. <clears throat> you know, Maybe we study too much mathematics and get captivated by the idea of infinity or something, I don't know. Um, but eternal life is indeed life forever after death, but is more a description of life than a comment on its length. And in verse 10 of this chapter, Jesus said that he came to give life to his sheep. Jesus was speaking to living people, yet he said he came to give them life. Now this shows us that what we take for life, what we commonly think of as life, is a shadow of the real thing. We're born alive in the flesh, but the flesh perishes, and this life is going to perish with it. We need a different life. We need a life that did not originate in the world of the flesh. We need a a life that originates in the world of the spirit. And that life comes from heaven. Jesus had that life. Jesus came from heaven. He came to heaven to bring that life to people. Eternal life is spiritual life and heavenly life. And it lasts forever because it belongs to an eternal world. Jesus' sheep belong to that world. A spiritual, heavenly eternal world. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? An eternal world made and filled by the Spirit of God, heaven, where God is. We get tiny tastes of this world in the visions of revelation. Anyone who is tired in this world, who's weary of resisting sin, who's drawn to Jesus, wants this heavenly world. When we see this eternal spiritual world, we recognize that this is our real home. This is where we really belong. This is what we were created for. But we also recognize that this world was not made for us. We're not worthy of this world, for we still sin. The flesh still clings to us like a toxic fog, poisoning everything we do. Even in our best moments, sin ruins our good intentions. We, we think that we'll show love to our neighbors, and... Uh, and find ourselves coveting their new car, we decide to increase our giving to the church and then become angry with God because we can't afford a big new big-screen big TV. And the worst of it is that we should, gain, should we gain entrance to the eternal world, we would surely be discovered for the wretched impostors that we really are. The best we can hope for is that God would quietly usher us out without adding humiliation to the doom of eternal death. This is how we think, isn't it? And this is the wickedness of all. Because God is not like that. God doesn't think that way. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Can you you believe that? Really? Really? Do you really believe that? Most people don't, you know. Most people don't believe it. They think that if they are bad enough, then that that will snatch them out of the Father's hand. That if they fail often enough, if they do enough bad things enough times, then they're doomed, they're done for. That's not what this text says. What about the bad sheep? You know, the liars, the cheaters, the mean Christians. Are you saying that God will not cast them out? No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What about the really bad sheep? those who call themselves Christians but obviously aren't, the lustful, lustful, promiscuous, drug dealers, slave traders, the filthy rich human traffickers. Such people don't deserve eternal death. They deserve to die. But if they're Jesus' sheep, no one is able to cast, cast them out of the Father's hand. Are you kidding? This is outrageous. Yes, yes, it's outrageous. And that is why the Jews sought to kill the Apostle Paul. Because Apostle Paul said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's offensive. It's offensive that people like this should be tolerated in, in, in the family of the father. To allow such criminals and horrible people in the church is an intolerable offense against all human sense of justice. It's an intolerable offense against human justice, but God's justice operates in the eternal world in which all debts of his children have already been paid. Hanging between heaven and earth, Jesus paid for all the sins of his sheep on the earth, and he opened the gate to heaven. The sins of Jesus' sheep have been paid for, and now they are free or even welcome to enter heaven. In the eternal world, the sheep of Jesus find themselves in a perfect family, with a perfect father. Now, the family members are not yet perfect, but they will be. And the family is governed by a perfect father who so loves his children that he will never expel them, no matter how bad they are or how often they fall into sin. Now, good fathers are not indulgent, they challenge their children to grow, and so does God. God directs and redirects, trains and exhorts, disciplines and encourages his children. And sometimes God's involvement in our lives can be difficult or even painful. Hebrews 12, 6 reads, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Any of you who've trained for a sport or any other sort of public performance have experienced the pain of training, but you've also experienced the thrill of success. Hebrews continues, for the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Athletes say, no pain, no gain. Pain is not punishment. God does not punish his children. All the punishment that God had to give was completely delivered to Jesus as he hung upon the cross. There's no punishment left for God to give. Neither does pain come because Satan is is getting involved in in controlling your life. Satan hates you and would love to hurt you, but Satan is completely controlled by God. And as we learn in the book of Job, when Satan causes pain, it is God using Satan for the purpose of strengthening and disciplining his people. No one knows how God is at work in our lives. We only see in retrospect how our pain was God's training and disciplining us out of his love for us. For Jesus' sheep, God's children, pain is never punishment, but it's always a gentle, loving nudge toward perfection. Good fathers are not indulgent. They maintain order among their children, and so does God. When a good shepherd discovers a wolf among the sheep, he chases it out or kills it. A good shepherd will not allow a wolf to kill and eat his sheep, and neither does God allow a child of Satan to kill his people. Jesus taught that weeds grow up in a good crop. Paul warned the Ephesian elders that wolves would enter the church. God expels those who are not his children. When when wolves enter, God expels the wolf. But that's because it's a wolf. It's not a sheep. God expels those who are not his children, but those who are pretending, and they're a threat to a church. But they're not his children. God is the good father of, who never allows his children to be kidnapped from his family. God is a good father for his children, but aha, there's the rub you say. Can I be sure that I'm one of God's children and not an imposter? This passage appears to be comforting, but perhaps it has you worried. Well, let's ask, do you hear God's voice? Yeah, you do, because we read it this morning. We read the scriptures. That's God's voice. And, and, and God, we hope, is speaking through me in this sermon. Uh, yes, you are hearing God's voice. God just spoke in the sermon, in the scriptures. And are you following Jesus? Well, you're here. This is where Jesus is. Jesus is among his people on the Lord's day, and you're here. And so that's a good sign. Did you come just for the food? Or did, or did you come because you wanted to spend this morning with Jesus? Well... Is this enough to be confident that I am one of God's children? Well, isn't that what God says in this scripture? Didn't, didn't the, doesn't the scripture say that if you hear his voice and follow, follow him to where he is, that you're a sheep? Well, do you, do you believe that? Do you trust God? Do you trust that what God says is true? But, you know, maybe you have doubts. And maybe you're here and you hear all this and you think, okay, <clears throat> that's hard to believe. It's okay. It doesn't matter if it's hard to believe. There are a lot of things that are hard to believe, and God does not condemn people who struggle to believe uh, as long as the belief is planted in the right place, as long as what we're believing and who we're believing is God himself and the salvation that he offers to us. God is satisfied with tiny faith as long as it's faith in him. Well, what about the sins that I committed this week? What about the sins that I committed this morning? Sin is serious, but remember, Jesus paid for those sins, and there is no condemnation. So you're free here this morning to enjoy God's pleasure. Now, perhaps you cannot answer positively to the questions we posed. Perhaps the scripture we read did not instruct and delight you. Perhaps it just confused you or antagonized you. Perhaps you hate what God said in the scripture, or have no idea what God said and consider it a waste of time. Did you come here to meet Jesus or did you come because your parents required it or to impress someone or as part of your own self-improvement project? Well, if this is the case, yeah, it, it, it doesn't sound like you're one of God's sheep. I mean, I'm, I'm in no position to say, but well, it sure doesn't sound that way. <clears throat> um, if that's the case, you're a, a man or woman of the earth and you don't have spiritual power. The blessings of God's children are not yours because you're not part of God's family. You are an imposter and you will die in the flesh and perish in hell forever. But it doesn't have to be that way. God's family is always open to everyone. At the beginning of his gospel, John wrote, but to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Everybody, all of you here, anyone here today who isn't a sheep of God, can become one by placing your trust in Jesus, making this and deciding that you're going to turn your back on that old, miserable, distrustful life and start believing and trusting in Jesus. And then you can be part of this family. And that eternal question, can you trust Jesus or, or not, is the question upon which your eternal future hangs. The author of Hebrews wrote, we have had eternal we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. All fathers, but the rare exception, love their children and try their best to provide for them. Most fathers love their children, but all human fathers fall short. All fathers here this morning try to do well, but we all fall short. All, all human fathers are weak and sinful, and all families led by them are imperfect. But God is the perfect father. God is the shepherd father who leads his children to good food and drink. God protects his children from vicious enemies. God walks with his children in the darkness of terror. God's children will never perish because no one can snatch them out of the father's hand. And finally, God stepped between his children and the execution they deserved. God took the excruciating torture of the cross, tasted the horror of death for us, And now, God sets a table before us. Every day, God provides for all that we need. But on this day, on the Lord's Day, God brings out the china and the silver. He gives us heavenly food and drink. There is no family like God's family because God is the perfect Father. Let's pray. Our Father, you taught us to pray our Father. And scripture is packed with evidence of your goodness and mercy and love. Our life hangs upon the truth that Jesus paid for our sins. He died so that we might live, so that we might have that eternal, spiritual, heavenly life. He did this awful thing because you love us with an eternal love. We know this, Father, and we bless you for it. And then, in an instant, we act as though you were a cruel taskmaster. We plot and worry and labor to earn enough merits to gain eternal life. We criticize and attack anyone who doesn't pass their judgment. How stupid we are. Father, why is it so hard for us to accept your love? We love you, yet we are tempted by our mortal enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we act as though you are a performance-based father. We beat ourselves, we condemn others. Father, forgive us, we pray, for these daily sins and continue your strong discipline. To present us fully mature in the end. We ask in the name of your Son, our Savior and Shepherd, Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow.